Good afternoon. I'm glad you're able to, to make it out this afternoon and to join with Manhattan Presbyterian Church as we worship God today. And these early services, we've been looking at what have been our, our core values as a church, and we've been going through these. And so we've looked at the means of grace, which of course is the Word of God and prayer and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We've also, last time, looked at covenant community. And we're going to look at making disciples and, and serving others and what it means to have a heart for church planting and, and missions. We've been looking at this, and we've been longing to be used of God to proclaim the gospel here on Sunday and throughout the week as we look outside of ourselves and we begin to love others in response to the love that God has shown to us. And so today the core value that we are looking at is worship. What is worship? Why do we worship? How should we worship God in the way that he has called us to do so? And so as you start to think through this, there are many texts that we can do. I've chosen to do Hebrews 12, verses 28 and 29. It's a short section, and really I've chosen this because I think it's going to lay out for us real well the, the motivation for worship, the method of worship, and the object of our worship. So we'll be looking at that today. If you've got your Bibles, you can open up to Hebrews 12. We're going to begin in verse 26, just to give a little bit of context. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we worship because you have opened our eyes and given us new hearts to love you and to see that you are worthy to be worshipped. Please give us focus on your word as we unpack it this evening. Would our understanding go beyond head knowledge and move us to a renewed joy and worship of you? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The etymology of words is something that's intrigued me over the years, and it might you too. I know many of you probably know this first one. The word Kansas is actually a, an Indian war, word. Do you know what it means? Let me shout it out. South wind, yes. The south wind, and it makes sense. If you go outside even now, you're going to feel that south wind. I learned growing up in, in Texas, this is the only other state that I know anything about, the Indian word for friend is what actually is a Texas. And I always found that ironic since a bunch of Texans actually ran off the Native Americans in a very unfriendly way, the very people who gave them the name to start with. This one was found real interesting, the word quarantine. You know if you find someone sick and they're separated from the rest of the group in order to keep it from spreading, the word Actually, it comes from a French word, and I'm going to mess this up, but quarante, something of that nature, uh, which means 40, and the suffix ein, which is kind of the equivalent to our English ish, meaning 40-ish, uh, which makes no sense until you start to understand that when boats were bringing things to French ports, arriving, if there was a chance of disease on board, they would make the boat actually wait for 40 days out in the harbor before they could actually come ashore as a means to make sure that that disease did not spread in, into France. So today our, our word that we're focusing in on is this word worship. It has an interesting history as well. Uh, even before we get back to the English of it, you may know that the Old Testament is originally written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic, and the New Testament is written in Greek. 
Um, what we find is we start to kind of survey what are the, these words that are translated worship in our, our New, New Testament and Old Testament. We find that there's three main sets of words which are translated worship. The first set communicates the idea of a bowing down. It's a, a submissiveness and a reverence before God. And we still see this idea in Japan today. When two dignitaries meet, if you ever watch them on, on CNN or any of the TV shows, you start to watch them and, and you see they meet and they both start bowing down to each other. You ever wonder why they do it over and over and over again? The reason they do it is they're determining who has more dignity. The less dignified of the two is supposed to bow lower, uh, thus showing that the other has more dignity, which is why they do it over and over and over again as they are trying to establish who it is that has the most dignity. In Scripture, this image of bowing down and submission before God is for worship. It's submission before our Creator because He's not only more dignified, he is most dignified. The second set of Greek and Hebrew words meaning worship carry the idea of, of fear and awe of who God is. It's that feeling. I, I get this feeling when I'm at the zoo. If you've ever stood outside the lion cage and you kind of start to imagine what would it be like if I was on the other side of this. You begin to get that feeling of fear and just awe at, at, at what this beast, this cat could do to you if it desired to. That's the second part. The third group of words for worship means to work or to serve. This is what shows up in our text in verse 28 as acceptable worship. It's serving. This is the idea that, uh, that we give of ourselves, that we give of our lives. In fact, uh, if you've ever wondered why it's called a public worship service, for years and years I actually never asked anyone but wondered that question. So you realize then that worship service is actually a redundant statement. And because it sounds better than worship worship. So, back to the etymology of words. Our modern word, worship, comes from an old English word, worthship. Very close to it, worthship. It's two parts to this word. Worth, which you likely know is about value. The quality of something or someone. We may say something is worthy, and what we mean is that it's rightly valued, or it's at a high level of value. And the second half of that word, ship, means a condition. You've heard the phrase, friendship meaning that this is your actual friend. So worship is that God is indeed worthy. And that's why it makes sense that this is a word for what we're doing this evening, that we come together to express in various ways that God is amazing. And we're showing that, that he is worthy of the most dignity, that he is worthy of our fear and our awe, that he is worthy of our service and submission, because God is God. John Piper, one of my favorite authors, once wrote, Sin is what we do when we are not satisfied with God. And I'd like to suggest the opposite is also true. Worship is what we do when we are satisfied in God. Now there's three different aspects of worship in our lives, and I want to mention them to you just quickly. First is private worship. This is exactly what it sounds like. You worshiping God on your own, quiet times at home, focused on, on God's word, maybe prayer in a room alone to God or on a, on a walk or, or journaling or meditating on scripture. It could be a number of things. It might be listening to music that draws your thoughts to who God is. Uh, it is anything in our day-to-day -day life that is drawing us to who God is and worshiping him. This we see often when, when Jesus gets alone and he prays alone, and we see that in his life often. The second is family worship. Many of you may have heard this word before. Uh, we get it from Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7. That uh, says that, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Listen to this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. This is really heads of homes gathering the family together to worship, to show your children that God is to be worshipped throughout the week and not just on Sunday. This doesn't need to be something formal. It's going to look different in every family. If you've not done it, I'll encourage you that you, you keep it simple. If your kids are little, sing a song. Uh, this little light of mine or Jesus loves me, something of that nature. Uh, read a story. Read from the Jesus Storybook Bible or something else. Help them act it out. Children, I promise, love acting these things out. It's an easy thing to do, and it doesn't have to be, be formal, like I said. Your children are going to squirm. They're going to wiggle. They're going to wander around. If you aren't careful, they'll wander right out of the room. But that's okay. Don't worry about those things. Just, just to be able to stop and show them the value of our God. And the third is public worship. It's often called Lord's Day worship or Sunday worship. That's what we're doing right now. Gathering together on the first day of the week to corporately, collectively worship God. In Acts 2.42, we learn that the earliest believers devoted themselves to public worship. In the text, we read that they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. Uh, That's a simple description of a corporate worship service. I want you to know, though, that public worship is, is unique. God's everywhere. That's true. But in a special way, God is present here when we gather together to worship him collectively. This is why Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 tells us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so giving this overview of what worship is to kind of set what we're going to look at, I, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at, in more detail of our text. And for those of you who like outlines, it's, it's this, the motivation for worship, the method of our worship and, and the object of our worship. And so first, the motivation for worship. Uh, this is seen in the first part of our verse. If you've got Hebrews 12 open still, uh, look with me. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we're told that we ought to be grateful because we've received a gift. And that gift is an unshakable kingdom. History has seen massive kingdoms rise up. The Byzantine Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East and North Africa, the Assyrian and the Persian Empires, and of course, that empire that wasn't built in a day. What is that one? The Roman Empire, right? Where are these kingdoms today? The earth shook and they crumbled. All of them. All of them gone. And what God is showing us here is that this kingdom His kingdom, the kingdom of God, cannot be shaken. It's like the the last line in Luther's famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress of Their God. You you remember it? Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. And in that last line, his kingdom is forever. The point is, is this. Your health can be shaken. Your relationships can be shaken. Your family, your career, your education, any project that you're working on can be shaken. And there's only one thing that cannot be shaken, and that is the kingdom of God. Philippians 3.20 speaks of this kingdom in terms of where our citizenship is. It says, Our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's an identity thing. If you travel to Mexico or, or England, you don't cease to be a citizen of the United States. Your loyalty and your service is, is still to the country that you belong to. In fact, you may be here and you may be a citizen of the United States, and that's great because that's where God has placed you in this world. But of greater importance than even that is your citizenship in this unshakable kingdom of God. There you will find a king who loves you, who cares for you, who laid down his life for you. And so the kingdom is unshakable and eternal. Let it also be said that our king, Jesus Christ, is worthy of worship. Just before the, the sermon, we sang a song. We sang of the 10,000 reasons that we have to praise God. What a, a great exercise it would be to, to spend a year or however long it took just writing out 10,000 reasons for your heart to praise God. Just to consider just physical creation as we look out at it. Did you know that on earth there are 100,000 different types of trees? Trees, not plants, trees. Uh, there are 900,000 different types of insects on the planet. That's unfortunate sometimes. There are 9,000 different types of birds, just winged animals. 9,000 different of them. There are 4 billion with a B, billion stars in our galaxy, which is called the Milky Way. And, and there are over 170 billion more galaxies in the observable universe. They call it the observable universe because there is no amount of technology that's ever found an end to it. Ever. I mean, do you get the vastness of God's creativity? If I'm creating the world, we're, we're going to end up with three kinds of trees, two types of birds, maybe a star or two, and all of it's going to look like a kindergartner drew it. We naturally, as people, praise artists for their music. We naturally are praising artists for their paintings, for their films, but nothing compares to the work of God's hands in this world. And I'm only mentioning the very, very broad strokes of creation. I mean, you really want to be amazed? Go and learn about the details of the human body, the way that God is working in your body right now just to keep you alive sitting here. I long for us to be amazed at who God is. A few years back, I, I saw a quote from one of you, and I, I saved it because it captured the sense of knowing who God is and the overflowing of praise that results from this sort of understanding. I won't share the name here, but the statement goes like this. She says, I am in awe of the endlessness of God. I may have been created to be a wife in relationship with my husband, but much more and much higher than even that, I am created to be the church in relationship to my creator. And he never ends. There is no limit to his vast being. And so we worship because of who God is, because of his creativity, because of his power, because he is holy, because he is just, loving, a, a redeeming God, and so on. God alone is God. And so let us gather to praise him for our salvation, for a kingdom that is unshakable, and, and we will continue to do so for the rest of eternity. One of the great things I love about the church and worshiping with the church body is this idea that we're going to come and go. People are going to come. They're going to move out. But because of our unity with Christ, we're talking about eternity, uh, about worshiping and knowing and, and, and loving God together for the rest of eternity. Let us praise God for his unmerited love, for calling us into his church for our homes and for our friends, our spouses, our children, our health, and, and our faith 
which remains even when our health fails us. Let us praise him for his choosing to love and to redeem us despite of our sinfulness. Look with me back to verse 28. I want us to consider the method of our worship. It says this in the second part of verse 28, and, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. It is true that we worship God in all of life. We worship when we stop and we, and we listen to him through reading of scripture and when we speak to God through prayer and we worship God when we face temptation and we obey him or when we face temptation and we fail and we go to him repenting and receiving mercy and grace. We worship God when we acknowledge God in all aspects of our lives, but there is a unique call to worship God together, corporately, like we're doing here. And if you look at our, our text, you see this word, thus. Thus, it's pointing backwards to something previously said. It's, it's connecting this gift of the unshakable kingdom to our giving worship to God. Worship that is acceptable. Worship that includes both reverence and awe. And the first thing I want you to see about this is that term, acceptable worship. What this tells us is that when we worship God, there is a way that is pleasing to Him. And there is a way that is displeasing or unacceptable to Him. So how do we know what's pleasing to God? Well, let's say I was going to throw a, a birthday party for Pastor John Dunning, right? What would that birthday party include? What kind of questions would I begin to ask of this party because because I could think to myself you know I really like to play wiffle ball so we'll definitely have wiffle ball at his party and uh, I enjoy the Lumineers and the Counting Crows so we'll put that on the stereo and my favorite cake is carrot cake so we're gonna have a carrot cake what would be wrong if if that's the way I, I started to ask questions about throwing John a, a birthday party it's about me right it's all about me, so how can I say this is a party for John? A better question to be asking for John's birthday party is, what does John desire? What game does John enjoy? What music pleases John? What cake does John desire? It's the same with God. We need to be asking, what does God desire our worship to be like? This way of, of thinking through worship historically has been called the regulative principle. Uh, the regulative principle. The Westminster Confession in chapter 21 put it this way. It says, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Put simply, what the confession is saying is that God has shown in his word what is acceptable for corporate worship. Don't get me wrong, I want to enjoy worship. I want you to enjoy it. We want to feel during worship. Emotions are good. But what we see in this text is that our emotions and our feelings can't be the tail wagging the dog. We can't start by asking what will engage the emotions, entertain men and women, but rather we start by asking what has God shown in his word to be pleasing to him. And here's what I mean. I personally would love to watch clowns doing an interpretive dance. I mean it. I, you know, if you get a Toby Mac song, I would even pay money to watch this. And if you don't believe me, organize the event. I will buy a ticket, the first one in line, to watch clowns do an interpretive dance. Uh, if done well, it might even draw my mind to think of, of who God is and how great God is, and that would be good. However, clowns doing an interpretive dance 
is not an option for the church's gathering, uh, not for our, our, our public worship like this. It's a commitment to letting God in his word determine what is acceptable for worshiping God. But understand this, what worshiping according to God's design is also what's best for us. It helps us to keep Christ at the center of our worship. And so what should our worship consist of? Uh, we spoke of Acts 2.42 earlier. It, it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And from this we can include the word of God, it being read, it being preached, it being taught. We can include prayers to God collectively from individuals for the congregation like we, we had Pastor Jim doing earlier. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper. We can look at 1 John 1, 9, and, and from that we can begin to include the confession of, of sin along with the assurance from God's word that our sin is forgiven. Colossians 3.16, we learn how singing is to be part of our worship. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. That word your in the text is plural. It could be rendered with thankfulness in all y'all's hearts to God, right? And I only point that out because it's corporate. It's not individual that this is talking about when it's speaking of, of singing these, these songs together. So we, we do our best uh, when, we, when we choose the music here. We do our best to make it easy for us to sing corporately. That's an important part of it. And, and one of the saddest things I've, I've seen in my life is, is when I go into a corporate worship gathering and when the music is, is beautiful, and it's about God and it's honoring to God. And yet it's so difficult to sing corporately that the congregation is just watching people individually worship God. It's a room full of people not participating, but, but just one individual or, or a group. Uh, at a concert, that's fine, but not in a corporate worship gathering of the church who, who gathers to worship God together. And that's why we want you singing. We want your voices, no matter how bad your voice is, just to hear you singing and lifting your voice to God. And like I said, we'll do our best to, to pick a musical style that, that we can sing together collectively. And, and I'll admit, there are going to be times we miss it. And um, we ask for your patience and for you to do your best and, and to sing uh, no matter what. I read recently, someone stated this way, our corporate responsibility before God and to each other is to sing together. I never thought of it that way before, but it really is. I sing because I, I love to, but there is also responsibility I have to sing to God because he has commanded in Scripture for us, not just me, but us, to sing worship to him. And the beautiful thing I've found about this regulative principle is that it pushes us always back to God's word to see what's acceptable for our worship. It leaves you driving to his word to see what does God desire in our worship. And yet one of the beautiful things about that is it doesn't make every church service look the same. There are a number of liturgies that could look very different from ours that follow God's word and are honoring in that way. It gives us boundaries, not restraints. And there's comfort in staying within these God-given boundaries for the worship of our Lord. And don't forget, corporate worship is not just singing with the musical instruments. It's everything between the call to worship and the benediction at the end. Uh, we don't have time to look at every detail, but I do want to show you one aspect of our worship service, the passing of the peace. It's very intentional. It's not halftime. It's not just so everyone can, you know, greet each other because we ignore each other during the week. It, it shouldn't be that. It serves as a specific time, and it's in a specific location in the actual worship service. We confess our sins collectively because we are collectively the, the people of God, and there's a common aspect to our sin. We also 
our individuals. And, and so we confess our individual sins to God silently. And, and we take time in the service to speak to God and confess these sins in more detail. So we can speak to him about our anger, our gossip, or, or lust, or selfishness, or hatred, which, which we've committed during this last week. And can you do that at home? I hope so. Yes, you can, and I hope you do. But this gives us a place where we can do it when we gather together, and our sin weighs on us. That's the reality of it. And so after we confess it to God, we're reminded of the forgiveness that we have through faith in Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the grace and of the mercy that we have been shown in the gospel. We then respond by by singing a song of praise to God, and, and then we have what we call the passing of the peace. We've just been reminded that we're at peace with God, right? Because of Christ and through the blood of Christ. And since we're at peace with God, we're also at peace with each other. And that's why you find it in that place. That's why you use that phrase, the peace of God. In fact, that's one of the greetings you can say to each other, right? Peace of God to you. When I first saw that in a bulletin, it scared me so much. I had no idea what I was supposed to do. It was that panic of, oh no, everyone knows what to do but me. And the reality is you can say peace of God if you want. You can also say, hi, good morning, how you doing? Because it's the symbolic nature that we are at peace with each other because uh, of the peace we have with God through Christ. So, in many ways we know that that often we're coming here. Uh, We're coming to worship God and we're weary from life. And our hope is that that we come in and we worship God and that we're renewed and that we're encouraged and we're strengthened as we go back out for the week. That's our hope for you. And the next phrase in our text says that worship should include reverence and awe. I tend to understand words through opposites. Irreverence is a lack of respect for someone who should be taken seriously. And so it's clear that reverence is is having a deep respect for someone who should be taken seriously. It's a deep respect for God. Uh, This doesn't mean funeral. It doesn't mean stuffy. We desire our our service to be winsome, right? Uh, But not a joke. Those of you who know me know my my natural disposition is to make jokes. I I tend to be more sarcastic than I'm happy with. I like to make people laugh. That's just part of, of who God's made me to be. But... That's not my goal in preaching. And so you might laugh from time to time. It might be because I mess up. It might be because it's intentional. But the goal here is not to make you laugh. Uh, The goal is to proclaim the word of God to you. Because that's what God has prescribed to to change you. uh, To make you more like him. To challenge you. To encourage you. And And I want you to understand it like this. Reverence is the understanding that we have in our hearts when we stand before God as a redeemed sinner. We're filled with a genuine gratitude that there's nothing that can separate us from his love. The other word in our text here is is awe. Awe is similar to reverence, but includes this sense of fear. Not the fear that you feel if if you're walking down the street and you were mugged at gunpoint. It's not that kind of fear, but, but rather that feeling of the possibility of danger. Like you'd feel if you're in the woods and, and you hear a, a bear roar in the distance. There's that respect. There's that fear of, of the power of this creature. When we come before God, there's that fear of the power of, of who God is. Now this last section builds an understanding of just how mighty God is. Look with me as we look at just the object of our worship. Verse 29 is short. It's one of the shorter verses in all Scripture. And all it says is this. For our God is a consuming fire. It seems like something that really shouldn't need to be said. Um, but I believe it's helpful to remind all of us that God is to be the object of our worship. It's not music. It's not ourselves. It's not unbelievers. I mean, I, I hope you enjoy the music when you come here. I hope you find yourself growing from being here. 
I hope that unbelievers are, are encouraged to see how wonderful God is and to see his people worshiping him together. But the one, the only focus of our worship must be God himself. So here in Hebrew, God reveals himself as a consuming fire. And we kind of need to get out of our culture to really understand this picture. We have this grasp on fire that's almost too good as a culture today to, to really understand the danger and what's being pictured here. In my house, we have Yankee candles and you know cozy fireplaces. And we, we tend to have these really small views of, of what fire is. And sometimes we forget just the dangerous side of fire. This last fall, we were making a, a bonfire for, for RUF, and, and we're in Shanahan's backyard, and starting to pile up all this wood, and, and then I, I believe it was Josiah came back later and piled up more wood, and this thing ended up so huge that, that when we lit it up before many people got there, it was enormous. It was, it was one of the biggest fires I've ever seen, and it's in the middle of this forest, and we're watching Travis, and Travis is, is one of the most laid-back guys I've ever met in my life, and yet we're watching him start to panic. You could see him getting nervous and, and realizing we might burn the entire like, side of, of the mountain down. There's no mountains in Kansas. The side of uh, the hill. But it was clear that, that he understood what this fire could do. It was beginning to consume this wood up in such a way that we couldn't get anywhere close to it. And we sent people in to bring buckets of water and throw it on this fire. And it was still such a huge fire that we could barely get close to it to even roast a marshmallow. You begin to kind of get this idea of what a consuming fire is. You, you can't even be in the presence of it without just being burnt to ashes. Fire is dangerous. And like our text tells us, it consumes. This text in Hebrews is actually a quote from the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 4.24, there Moses is speaking and he says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. But like our text stops right there. In Deuteronomy it carries on and it has one more little phrase at the end. It says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The point in Deuteronomy is the same point in our text. God desires that he be the object of our worship and, and he alone. Because God is the only one who is worthy of worship. And the truth is, worship's not our problem, right? What I mean by that is that, that everyone worships. We are by our very nature worshipers. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once, once said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. What he means is there's no neutral. There is no void of worship in our lives. If, if you've ever been to the beach, and, and I questioned using a beach reference in Kansas, but go with me. If you've ever been to the beach, one of the strangest experiences is, is you go straight out from the sand and you're playing water up to your, your waist or your chest, and, and you're out there for a while, and, and finally when you turn and you decide to go back in, it's the moment when you realize, without ever knowing it, you've been pushed about 100 yards down the beach. And you have no idea where you are. And, and I, I think our worship's like that. We have this natural tendency to just drift away from God, to drift away from, from the gospel, to, to not even realize it's happening until we're 50 yards down the beach. Before we know it, we tend to worship self and worship celebrity and sport and beauty and money and anything that promises us some taste of joy, some pleasure. And we must swim against the current so that the object of our worship is always our, our mighty and our powerful God our loving and our merciful Savior, our sanctifying and purifying Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And so when we come together, let us do so to worship God who is worthy of being the object of our worship. We said that fire can consume you. Yet it's, it's also been seen that fire refines and it purifies. In the gospel, we are being made perfect. 
as the fire of our holy God consumes the impurities. And so let us not run from our all-consuming God. Rather, let us run to Him as our only hope, as the only one who can make us pure. So if you get nothing else from the sermon, get this. Worshiping God together is important. And I realize there's some aspect of preaching the choir because you're here, right, at 4 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon when it's beautiful outside. But worshiping God together is important because God says it's important. And He made you and created you and redeemed you. Make it a priority for yourself, for your family, to gather together with the church to worship our great God. Uh, we need this more than we know. We, we need to sing praises to God. We need to be reminded often uh, of the mercy and the grace that we have been shown in the gospel. I want to close by reading Psalm 96. The Psalms are beautiful. If you ever just find yourself feeling detached from God, distant, open up to the Psalms, almost any of them. The Psalms are a beautiful, beautiful look at just who God is. And here in Psalm 96, the psalmist is, is nearly exploding with joy in worshiping God. And I want this for us. Psalm 96 says, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord, all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless His name. Tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that we have not only been invited by you to worship you, not only have you given us hearts that desire to worship you, but you have given us a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so we stand on Christ, who is our solid ground. And we thank you for showing us in your word acceptable worship. And ask that you would give us great reverence for your name. And that we might come always with a sense of awe at who you are. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for how we are nourished when we worship you. May you be honored in our lives and in our corporate worship. Amen.